you guys have a seat. Uh, if you're first time with us today, we're so glad you're uh, with us you know, this morning. Uh, I've just completely declared that it's Christmas time. Like I was walking, I was driving in, listening to Joy to the World. I'm, I'm just ready for Christmas. I told my wife yesterday, um, it's time to decorate. I know Thanksgiving is coming up, but Jesus gets two, two months. So uh, I've just declared it. You know, if it's uh, this past weekend, um, we, we had our fir- very first weekender. And on Friday night, we had a time... Uh, just to celebrate all that what God has done and, and hoping and praying about what God would have for us in the future. Uh, and y'all, God has brought us so far. Uh, and we are, like I said on Friday night, like we're just at like one step past the starting line and praying for the race that's ahead of us to make disciples, multiply churches, and mobilize missionaries all over the world. That's what we want to see here at New City Church. Um, and so if, you're, if it's your first time with us, we're so glad that you're here. Um, but today, we're going to be uh, continuing our journey through the book of John. We have a bit of a showdown today between Jesus and John the Baptist, but it's not much of one because um, John the Baptist, he actually just kind of uh, bows out um, because he knows better. But and it was actually never a competition, uh, but by those who are following uh, John, we'll see that they got a little jealous of Jesus because of the, cr- the, cr- the crowds were flocking to Jesus and getting baptized, and John's disciples experienced jealousy and envy. And we'll read, in the, next, we'll read the text in a few minutes, but we, we see the showdown. Um, but before we do that, I think it's fair to say that jealousy and envy are common problems. You know, we all experience it at different levels. It starts at a young age. Uh, we see it with small kids, kids seeing a toy they want. Uh, they, they get upset because they can't have it, and then they just grab the toy. Uh, we see it play uh, out as adults with material possessions in relationships, uh, in sports, at work, and now just in social media, uh, it's massively intens- intensified by people just showing their highlight reel and others looking in, comparing, or, and just feeling left out. And, you know, envy and jealousy, uh, they happen all the time. And it shouldn't surprise us when we see it play out with something good like ministry and baptism. You know, last week uh, I was reading a book that was kind of touching on this from a, a philosophical and a psychological level. And so I want you to try to follow me here uh, and pay close attention for just a few minutes. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, uh, in chapter 10 of his book, he talked about the impact that Sigmund Freud has had on our American culture and in the West, uh, specifically when it comes to engaging our desires with things like sex and food and relationships. Now, I, I, didn't, I did take a psychology class in college, but I'm certainly no Freudian expert, okay? Um, so I'm leaning heavily on John Mark Comer here, but in a condensed, overly simplified summary, the reason Freud would say we're unhappy is because our desires are being suppressed. And so when we think about envy and jealousy, for example, we see something we want or desire and we can't have it. And so therefore we experience jealousy or frustration uh, or, or things like anxiety or worry or fear or just a whole host of other things. And what this has led our culture to is for us to then say, if I have this thing I desire, like sex or food or clothes or money or status or approval or relationships or just fill in the blank, I'll then be happy. And we hear this type of advice, we hear this type of advice play out all the time in our culture. You know, oftentimes not even realizing it with phrases just like, uh, just follow your heart. Or how about this one, just do it. Or the heart wants what the heart wants. Or how about this one, you do you. And maybe you've heard this, this phrase, be true to yourself. 
um, which John Mark Comer in his book uh, points out ironically, it originally uh, originates from Shakespeare's Hamlet. He said in his Shakespearean way, he says, this above all to thine own self be true. That's how it was originally said. Which funny enough was quoted by Polonius, who was characterized as the fool in the play. And so follow me here. In the early 1600s, 250 years prior to Sigmund Freud, that phrase, be true to yourself, was known to be foolish. But for us today, it's a common catchphrase for a way of life that tells us to feed our fleshly desires. And when we look at our world today that is widely known to be more anxious and lonely than maybe ever before, that experiences more jealousy and envy at an alarming rate, I think we can fairly say, Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) Now, I'm certainly not blaming uh, the problem on Sigmund Freud. The problem is because we have an enemy that speaks lies into our mind, into our heart, leading us to follow a path that leads us to sin. But what it does is lead us to ask the question, is there another way? Like we have these desires, and so what are we supposed to do with them? Are we supposed to suppress every desire of our heart and be miserable? And to that we say, well, no. Um, So then what do we do? And the question we must ask then, which is our big idea today, uh, what's the path to joy and contentment? That's where we're going. What's the path to joy and contentment? And and I'm I'm just glad you asked, okay? Because like I said, that's what we're going to uncover. And so if I lost you at any point with all the talk around John Mark Comer and Sigmund Freud and Shakespeare and Hamlet and the you do you talk, this is the question that we're asking today. What's the path to joy? So I think it's fair to say, I think we would all like a little more joy in our life. And so let's see what our passage, uh, where our passage takes us. Follow along with me in verse 22 of John chapter 3. This is what it says. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you were bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above uh, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to, to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony set his seal to this, that God is true." For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, and maybe you're thinking, wait, like how is this leading us to joy and contentment? Like they're talking about baptisms and weddings and a bunch of other random things. And so you're not confused. We saw back in verse 29, uh, John the Baptist says, this joy of mine is now complete. And so we have to figure out, like, how, how is his joy now complete? Like, what led him to complete and full joy? 
And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk back through this passage. I'm going to teach several things as we go. Um, We're going to seek to answer the question, what is the path to joy and contentment? And just to make a little, things a little fun for us today, I'm going to structure our time in three categories with, uh, number one, a showdown, um, which is more of the illustration and teaching moment for Jesus. And then our second point, what we're going to spend most of our time, is the path, number two, the path to joy. Uh, and then at the very end of our passage, we have number three, a landmine. Uh, I have another way to say this third point, but just to keep you curious, I think it's fair to say we don't want to step on the landmine. Uh, and so I'm going to point it out for us when we get there, because if not, um, like landmines are known for, it just doesn't end well. So again, a showdown, uh, the path to joy, and a landmine, all leading us to answer the question, what is the path to joy and contentment? And before we dive back into the text, I want to remind you briefly of John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist, he showed, um, showed up on the scene in the first chapter of the book of John, and we saw that from birth, uh, John was destined for greatness. Like He came from a great family, he had a lot of things going for him, uh, and, and, but John knew his entire purpose was to point people to Jesus. And back in John chapter 1, we saw that John the Baptist, he was baptizing people, uh, which is where our idea of baptism comes from today. And just as a passing note, uh, we're baptizing people next week. And so if you've never been baptized, next week is a great time to do it. Uh, but we'll get back to, into why we do it in a few minutes. But let's look, for, first, look back at uh, verses 22 and 24 again. This is what it says. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. And so here we see number one, the showdown, okay? We've got Team Jesus versus Team John. So Team Jesus is baptizing people in the Judean countryside and Team John was baptizing people in a place called Anon. Um, I do want to point out this wasn't really a competition Uh, But I do think it helps illustrate the point because as we'll see in a few minutes, Team John gets a little jealous. So maybe we could say it felt like a competition to Team John. But in reality, like I said, it's not a competition. No, a full-on revival was breaking out. Because people from all over are coming to be baptized by both Team John and Team Jesus. And during this time, baptism was showing and symbolizing repentance of sin. So people were realizing, oh wait, with Jesus here, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is here, uh, and we need to get right with God. And so they came and were getting baptized. Now that's what baptism showed then. Uh, It's much more than that now. And as I mentioned next week, we're going to be baptizing people here during our service. And the baptisms we'll do next week, uh, they won't cleanse anybody of sin. And it won't change anybody's standing before God. Like, no, the only thing that can cleanse us of sin and change anybody standing before God is by believing in the the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rather, baptism is an outward symbol of what God has done inwardly in our hearts. And so if anybody has professed faith in Jesus and is following Jesus as Lord of their life, the first step of obedience for that person is baptism. The scripture is very clear. The command is to believe and then be baptized. And when we baptize people, y'all, here, it is a celebration. We celebrate that the old life is gone and that the new life is here. And they are making a public declaration, proclaiming to the world that their life is now ruled by Jesus. And so if you have trusted in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, again, next week is the time to do that. But I want to get back to the text because remember, people from all over are coming to both team john and team jesus to get baptized and look what happens uh, in the next two verses 
Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. In short, uh, John's boys, they were having a theological discussion with a guy uh, over how to be made clean and pure. And they came uh, up to John and said, look, like Jesus is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So two quick things here, okay? First, we know from John 4 that Jesus wasn't actually the one baptizing. It was actually his disciples, but Jesus was with them. But then secondly, they say all are going to Jesus, which is interesting. Because as we just read, we know John, he was also baptizing, which means either the disciples were being just dramatic, uh, overstating the truth, which is certainly possible, uh, showing a level of jealousy and envy like we've talked about, or... People were coming and getting baptized by Team John, and then everyone who they baptized went over to Team Jesus to get re-baptized. Like, I don't really know which one is true. Most people say that they were just making an overstatement, showing jealousy, but what we see here is that it caught their attention. Like, it caught their attention enough to say something to John, which you would think in this moment, in a normal situation, John would not like this. Because remember, John started this whole baptism thing. And now Jesus' disciples are doing what John started, taking the glory away from Team John. I just imagine in our day, Team John posting on Instagram, you know, a picture of a few baptisms. And then on that same day, Team Jesus posting on Instagram, but they have like a thousand baptisms. And those few that Team John baptized were also in those pictures for Team Jesus. Like, Team Jesus has totally one-upped Team John, and Team John is likely envious and jealous. Have you ever been there? Maybe not with baptism, uh, but maybe with friendship or relationships or status or some sort of possession. Seeing someone else or something else and you realize they seem to have what I want and what I desire. And maybe, maybe it's just simply friendship. Or maybe they appear happy. Or maybe there's some sort of a job satisfaction or car or clothes or something you want, but you just can't afford. Have you ever felt left out? Have you ever compared yourself to someone else? Uh, It just sends you into a tailspin, into a downward spiral of emotional toil. I know I have. (laughs) Like, have you ever felt like, man, why do I keep falling short? Can't I just ever win? Can't I just be the one that's noticed for once? Like, why can't I get ahead? You know, my my son's baseball team, um, he's six up to this point, they were like 0-8. I mean, they literally did not win a game. They couldn't win a game to save their life. Uh, They finally won their first game this past week. It was awesome. Uh, But Stockton, you know, he's six. Uh, He loves the game. He just wanted to win. And he he often, he would say often, like, Dad, why can't we ever just win? He said next year, like, can I just be on a team that wins? And I'm like, I know. I want you to win too, son. But what's funny, though, is that he would actually get way more upset when they didn't have snacks than when they lost which I get, those snacks for a six-year-old kid are a big deal. Like losing, plus, snack, no, uh, losing uh, plus snacks after the game, it's still a good day at the baseball field. But losing without snacks, y'all, this is not a good day. But then if his sister wins and gets an awesome snack and he loses and gets no snack, y'all, it is a full-on tragedy. And, and just maybe that's how Team John felt. When they saw Team Jesus baptizing a bunch of people, maybe envious, sad, jealous, angry, down and out, entering into a downward spiral, 
And you know what? They likely didn't act like a small child that's upset. But what I think we all know about small children and their emotions is we're actually just like them. We just don't show it. Like we've learned to act differently on the outside and we've learned to cover up what's happening inside of us. We're on the outside, we all look fine and happy, but on the inside, we're really crumbling and spiraling. And just maybe that's you today. Or maybe you've been there, or maybe a bunch of little small things like this happen often to you, maybe with school or work or family or relationships or with your future, feeling like your team just can't win. You just want a snack, but there's no snacks. And to top it off, those around you seem like they're having a great day at the ball field, and you feel like, why can't I just catch a break? And that's you today. I I pray that you would listen in because uh, it doesn't have to be this way. Because in John's response, and the rest of our chapter, I hope and pray and believe will prove helpful, showing us a new way. So look at John the Baptist's response in verse 27 to 30. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, I find this so interesting. John the Baptist, uh, his disciples come to him, uh, likely ignited with jealousy and ministry envy. And John says, in that exact same moment, under the exact same circumstance, seeing the exact same picture that his disciples see, with Jesus baptizing a bunch of people, and he says at the end of it, however, verse 29, he says, this joy of mine is now complete. The disciples were driven to envy, treating it like a competition, but John says his joy is complete. John was led to full joy. But John the Baptist and his disciples are in the exact same circumstance. But they have two completely different responses. One was led to envy and jealousy, but the other was led to a fullness of joy. New City Church, this is gold. Like, this should cause us to stop and think, what in the world is going on here? Like, I want whatever John the Baptist has. John, uh, John has everything, he had everything going to him for him. He was at the top of his game, and then Jesus just knocks him off his pedestal, and yet John says... My joy is now complete. So let's ask, what has led John the Baptist to a complete and fullness of joy? Well, simply put, it's his perspective. If you remember from the discussion at the beginning with Sigmund Freud, with the perspective that starts around the idea that we're not happy because our desires are being suppressed, like sex and food and relational intimacy and power, where our natural response would then be to then feed our desires which is what we naturally see in our world, all the while our culture is more anxious and depressed than maybe ever before. I mean, again, Christian or non-Christian or secular psychologists, they all agree there's no hiding this. We are in, without a doubt, a mental health crisis in our world. And so again, we have to acknowledge that a you-do-you, feed-your-desires, be-true-to-yourself, and a me-centered world, it just is not cutting it. Again, referring back to the book, what John Mark Comer talks about is that before Sigmund Freud changed the landscape, putting us at the center of the world, Augustine's perspective, the biblical perspective, was the adopted cultural perspective, which basically says, it's not that our desires are innately bad, 
You know, we need to suppress all of our desires, but rather it's that our desires are misordered. So hang with me here. I think this illustration may help. Okay, so about, about two years ago, my wife was helping a girl in our church named Katie that lived in our house at the time put, to, put together a dresser from Target. Like the kids are in bed. You know, it was, uh, it's a late night. They're, being, they're really bonding over this project. They got the drill and the hammer out. They're like really flexing their girl power muscles. Like they're doing this thing. They're making it happen. They were really crushing it. They thought they were rock stars, furniture assembly extraordinaires. But at the end, they realized, oh, wait. Like something about this dresser isn't right. Like it's, things just aren't working right. And come to find out, they soon realized they put the entire dresser together inside out. Like it was completely backwards. I know it makes no sense. Like how can you put a dresser together inside out? Well, somehow they did. And when they got to the end, they realized they missed a few steps. They went out of order and they had the wrong pieces in the wrong places. And as they were putting it together, it seemed right, it looked right, it even felt right, but yet it wasn't right. They had all the pieces in place, but they were put together in the wrong order. And when I walked in, I looked at it, I looked at the dresser, uh, but believe me, it wasn't a dresser. <laughs> like the thing wouldn't hold anything. It was put together in the wrong order. It looked right, it seemed right, but it wasn't working the way the maker intended for it to work. So they took it back to Target, completely assembled, uh, and returned it completely inside out uh, and wrong back to Target. So if anybody has an inside out uh, dresser out there, I'm sorry. But like they, they did take it back, uh, and now um, the dresser, they, they got a new dresser, and they, they tried again. And they, and they succeeded the second time. But I think this is a good picture of our lives when we think about joy and contentment. God created us and designed us to live in a specific way and in a specific order, but what's the problem? Our desires are out of order. Our perspective is often misplaced. And when we look at our passage today, seeing John the Baptist's example compared to his disciples, we would see that John the Baptist had the right perspective. His desires were in the right order. And John's order of desire led him to have his joy complete. And so when we look at John the Baptist's order of desire, we need to think, like, what was it? And we see what he says in verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John's order of desire that led him to joy was putting Jesus first. It was desiring Jesus over himself. He said, Jesus must increase and he must decrease. If John would have put himself first, this situation would have been very different. Like if John would have put himself first, I just imagine John going over to team Jesus and saying, like, hey, bro, what are you doing? I'm the baptism guy. I'm John the Baptist. It's in my name. I'm supposed to be the one baptizing, not you. But no, John knew exactly what his purpose was. John's purpose was to point people to Jesus. And back in verse 27, we see John's response that everything he had, his entire ministry, it came from God. Like John did nothing and God did everything. That's what he said in verse 27. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. 
John knew everything he had was from heaven. And he also knew everything Jesus had was from heaven. And then John reiterates again in verse 28 what he, what he says, what he's been saying. Verse 28, it says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John keeps deflecting off of himself and pointing to Jesus. And then I love uh, the illustration he, he gives. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And John says, remember, like I'm not the groom. I'm just the friend of the groom. John's basically saying like, I'm not the groom. I'm more like the best man. Like how silly would it be if the best man at a wedding started getting jealous and pouting because his best friend was getting married because his friend, the groom, was getting all of the attention? Like, no, if he were a good friend and loved his friend, he would be rejoicing and excited for him. If he were upset, it would be because he was more focused on himself than he was his friend getting married. So that's what John is pointing out here to his disciples. John knows it's not his party. Like, this is Jesus' party. And he's rejoicing because he's just there. And he then says, my joy is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease, which leads us to number two, the path to joy. New City Church, the path to joy is taking ourselves out of the center of the story and placing God at the center of the story. The entire Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelations, put God at the, as the main character of the story. The entire Bible puts Jesus, the Son of God, as the hero of the story. This is the way God designed us to live. Like These are His ordered instructions for us. But you know what our natural self does? What we might by nature intrinsically do, we continue to put ourselves at the center of the story. Like, we don't have to go to self centered school. Like, it just happens. Like, our natural drift is to drift towards putting ourselves, our desires, our wants, our ambitions first. We do as the saying goes you do you. When I Googled that this week on what it actually meant <laughs> uh, to, be, uh, to be true to yourself, or the Hamlet quote, This is the first thing that popped up. This is what it said. Being true to yourself means you don't worry about pleasing other people. Living by someone else's standards or rules. You don't care what people think of you. You live as your natural self without compromise. And so this is what our world tells us. You do you. Be true to yourself. The heart wants what the heart wants. Just go for it. And it looks right. It may even feel right. But when you start to inspect it and really look at it like that dresser, you realize, oh, wait. Something's not right here. Like, this isn't working. You know, this past week I was listening to a podcast on a run, and and Paul David Tripp was speaking on marriage and expectations. And he said this. I thought this was so jarring, but yet it's often so true about marriage. He said, most of the time we don't get married because we love our spouse. We get married because we love ourselves. And he was getting at this idea that we innately get married because we want that person to fulfill something in us that only God was made to fulfill. And what will happen? They're going to fail. Why? Because uh, why do we do this to our spouse? Because our desires are misordered. I mean, in marriage, in relationships, friendships, we often put our own desires above the other person. And oftentimes, we'll put that other person before God. Maybe we would never say that, but our hearts and actions 
I think, may say differently. Now, let me tell you the key to an unhappy marriage, okay? Or really any relationship. is to expect your spouse or friend to fulfill and be what only God can do and be. You know, one of the most freeing things in a relationship is to first realize, hey, that person is not God. And they will not perfectly live up to your expectations. But at the same time, realizing and remembering we were made for relationships. And so all the messiness of this is worth the effort. You know, over a year ago, we went through the book of Philippians as a church, and the entire letter was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in a prison cell. And when you look at the book, what jumps off the page in every chapter is the theme of joy, which seems ironic because Paul was in prison, but yet he was joyful. And not because of his circumstances, but because his perspective and desires were in proper order, much like John the Baptist in our, in our text. And as, we, as you scan all of Paul's letters, my, pre- my preaching professor, uh, Tony Morita, came up with a cheesy acronym that I think gives us a good pathway to joy. And it was this, J-O-Y, <laughs> joy. J, Jesus, O, others, and then Y, yourself. And the reason Paul was so joyful in prison was because his joy was first in Jesus, not in his circumstances or what others or what was going on around him. No, his joy was first in Jesus, which was a firm and sure foundation, an eternal and enduring source of joy. No matter what happened to Paul, he knew he would always have Jesus. But then secondly, what we also see is that Paul considered others more significant than himself. Like he put others before himself. And this is what Paul exhorts us to in Philippians. And then third, like he didn't hate himself No, he just put himself third, after Jesus and after others. And as we think about this order and keeping our desires in proper order, it leads us to joy. And if they're out of order, the results are not good. I mean, just think about this. If we put ourselves before others, we'll be selfish and and me-centered, which is what our world has shown isn't working and leads to anxiety and sadness and loneliness and frustration and pride and jealousy and all sorts of other problems. But then secondly, another way to get out of order is if we put others, if we put ourselves, if we put others before ourselves, but yet Jesus isn't first. If Jesus isn't first fueling us and feeding our joy, we'll burn out with nothing else to give. But if we put Jesus first, we have a sure and steady foundation. And we put others before ourselves, we will be living the way God intended us to live. Again, God did not create us to be at the center of the story. God created us with a specific design and purpose. I mean, even Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve. Even Jesus himself lived with this order of life. I mean, think about this. Why did Jesus come down to earth to live a perfect life and then die on the cross? He didn't do it for himself. He was with God in heaven. He was with God at creation, as John 1 tells us. Jesus' life on earth as a human wasn't for himself. No, Jesus went to the cross for God's glory, and he also did it for others. Jesus came to earth to rescue us. So why in the world would we think our life would be any different? The reason we struggle in our marriages, in our careers, in our relationships, in every other area of life and live without true joy is because we're so fixated oftentimes on ourselves 
There's a whole bunch of reasons it could happen, but it's oftentimes because we're so fixated on ourselves and how everything around us affects us. And when something doesn't go the way we want it to or desire it to go or expect it to go, our world falls apart because our world is centered around ourselves and our expectations. And y'all, I'm not saying this, pointing fingers at you. Y'all, I'm saying this because I'm preaching to myself because I know this is exactly what happens to me. My view and my life, my view of my life and myself and my desires and ambitions and expectations and my, 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 I mean, my, fill in the blank. It gets so big at times. And in the meantime, the greatest thing in my life, which is God himself, gets really, really, really small. And the impending result of that is for me to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders and to be led to, dis- or to, be led to despair or to just to simply get angry. Here's a very small but incredibly real life, everyday, painful example from my own life, okay? You know, I, love, I love bedtime at our house. Three small kids. Not the process of getting our kids to bed, but rather the moments after our kids go to bed. It's just a precious, precious time, right? Like you watch a show, eat ice cream or our kids' Halloween candy. I call it the dad tax, you know? Um, it's a beautiful thing. Like they get dressed up, they run around, we benefit from their hard work. Um, but let's be honest here, the parents do way more of the work uh, for the costumes anyways, thus we tax them. <laughs> but the time after bed, like uh, that's my time. Like that's Kelly's time watching the World Series, eating candy. It's great. It's glorious. Like it is my time. But what happens like the kids, they can't fall asleep sometimes, and daddy's world and daddy's expectations are being messed with. Like daddy doesn't like it, okay? Uh, daddy's candy, daddy's Reese's cups, daddy's game is being taken, and daddy is struggling. Why? Because in that moment, I'm at the center of my world. And I put myself before others, and I have made my, uh, made my comfort a functional God in my life. Again, my desires were disordered. There's nothing wrong with Reese's Cups and the Braves. Like, these are gifts from God. But my desires were out of order. If my desire in the moment was first Jesus and then second others and myself third, my joy would not have been taken. Because my joy would not have been found in me or in my Reese's Cups or the World Series. But rather, my joy would have been in the God who entrusted me to be an example of love and patience to my kids. But as soon as my, I had my desires disordered, I gave room for my joy to be taken because my joy was in my comfort and expectations. Y'all, we could take that one small scenario and plug that same thing into a million different examples. But the question we need to ask ourselves is how are our desires ordered? Not just what we know, how they should be, but what do our life and actions actually say about how they're ordered? I mean, if we inspected just how we spend our time, what would it say about the order of our desire? If we inspected our finances, what would they tell us about how our desires are ordered? If we inspected our emotions and how different things affect us, what would they tell us? If we inspected our relationships or our career ambitions or our school, what do these things tell us about how our desires are ordered? Maybe we know this or maybe we don't, but Jesus, as a Christ follower, is our source of joy. And as John 3.30 tells us, Jesus must increase and we must decrease. New City Church, put that, 
verse to memory. And may we make it the anthem of our life. May Jesus become greater and may we become less. And what I want to make really clear clear here is that in order for us to decrease and for God to increase is that we don't start by putting ourselves down. No, we start by making God way bigger. I I don't know about y'all, but for me in my life, I know my view of God is often way too small. And because of that, I pray often for my family, for our church, for myself, that we would all have just massive views of God. Because that's where our joy is found. And if our true source of joy is really small, if God is really small in our life, or almost just non-existent in our life, then our joy will likely follow suit. The path to joy is not to just muster up more joy. The path to joy is to make God increasingly greater in our life throughout our days, putting Him first in all areas of our life, and then considering others more significant than ourselves, putting others before ourselves. But I don't want to just tell you this. I want to show you this with our text. Notice what comes after John the Baptist says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Look at verses 31 and 35. He who comes after me is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from a heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters, utters the words of God. For he who gives the Spirit without measure, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. I want you to notice in what we just read, how God is increased and humanity is decreased. We saw in verse 31 that Jesus is above all, he's over all, like everything is his, uh, seeing that he came from heaven. And then in verse 34, we see that God gives the spirit without measure, which I love this. Uh, we could just marinate on that phrase, like he doesn't hold back. He just heaps the spirit on us. He lavishes on us as he sees fit. In verse 36, we see that God loves his son Jesus and God gives everything into his hands. Like There's so much in these few verses. But we see here that Jesus is over all, like he's over our entire life. He holds the whole world in his hands. He made the world, he made you, he knows you, and he lavishes his helper, the Spirit of God, on all those who call him God the Father and trust in Jesus. We could go on and on about the grandness and majesty of God, and it wouldn't be complete without seeing the love of God at the cross. Seeing just as we saw last week in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's grand love is so big that he gave up his own son that he could have both you and me. That's the gospel. God is so big, he made the whole world, yet God is so personal that he knows us each by name, knows everything about us, and he lavishes his love on us. New City Church, when we are down in the pits, we need to take our eyes off of ourselves and gaze upon the glory of the cross and remember his great love that he has for us. Y'all, the same thing is true for both fighting sin and also in finding joy. Step one is to see and regularly remember the grandness of God. And step two is to go back to step one and gaze more deeply on God's glory. And you know what? When we are there gazing upon God, God starts to change us. Because joy is found at the foot of the cross. By no means am I saying our circumstances will will improve and life will get easier and we'll never be sad But what I am saying is that our joy and contentment can certainly grow regardless of what's going on around us. New City Church, 
May we regularly gaze upon the grandness and the glory and the majesty of God. But like I said at the beginning, I do want to end our time with number three, a landmine. This may seem a bit out of nowhere and kind of just blows up this whole joy talk and seems a little gloomy, um, but this is how landmines work. You're walking along and then bam, a landmine. And that's what we have in verse 36. Now look at verse 36, the last verse in our chapter. This is a bit alarming. If you've professed faith in Jesus, this is good news. But if you have not professed faith in Jesus, this is a very stark warning for you. Look what it says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And short and very simply put, if you believe in Jesus, you get eternal life full of everlasting joy. Where in contrast, those who do not believe in Jesus, the Bible says in verse 36 that the wrath of God remains on you. That's sticky and hard. And that's alarming. Like That's like an explosive landmine. But like I said at the beginning, this is me telling everyone here that this is there. Like if I don't point this out and if I don't make this really clear, this would not, that would not be loving. Like that would seem like hate. Letting those I love walk right into a landmine knowing it's there, uh, that is not love. Like that is hate. This is our alarming landmine. But it's not as alarming and out of the blue as we may think. Because this entire text actually shows us two paths. We saw number one, the path, or number two, the path to joy. And if I were to rename this third point, it would be number three, the path to destruction. Ultimately, we have two paths in front of us. A path to everlasting joy that can start now through believing in Jesus or a path to everlasting wrath and destruction that comes simply by not believing in Jesus and rejecting him. And hear me on this. Of course, I want every person in this room to choose life uh, of everlasting joy. But you know what? I don't want you to choose it because you're afraid of wrath. Yes, I know that plays a part, but listen, the Christian life is far more than just fire insurance. It's far more than just avoiding wrath. The Christian life is a life full of joy that lasts forever, and that joy can start right now. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you can begin the life of full joy. Again, as, we, as we've seen today, the path to joy, it begins with Jesus. May we trust Him, may we go to Him, and may we put Him first in all areas of our life because when we put Jesus first, others second, and ourselves third, that is where joy is found. New City Church, may Jesus increase and may we decrease. Jesus is our path to joy. If you have not trusted in Him, I pray that you would do that today. Let's pray. God, I have no clue what you're doing in the hearts of, of the people in this room, maybe watching online. Father, we want to find true joy in Jesus Christ. Father, may we put you first in all areas of our life. May we uh, look off of ourselves and look to the glory of the cross. If there are people here today that have not trusted in Jesus, would they walk in faith towards the cross, towards Jesus saying, yes, God, I want to live for you. Father, would you save people today? Would you do a mighty work? 
Father, we love you and we need you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.